Hello, this is Jeremy Morlock, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Thursday, May 11th edition of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier radio reading service. Previous Fights Stealing Biden on Debt Talks by Katie Rogers As a debt limit crisis loomed in 2011, Vice President Joseph R. Biden Jr. described early negotiations with Republicans as civil, at one point suggesting that the process was about finding out who was willing to trade their side's bicycle for the other side's golf clubs. The genteel vibe came to a halt that summer when Speaker John A. Boehner walked away from a deal because he was not able to wrangle Republicans in his caucus. Months later, congressional leaders agreed to raise the debt ceiling and cut trillions in federal spending to avoid default. The bitter compromise convinced Mr. Biden of two things, according to a half dozen current and former advisors. Do not negotiate with a speaker who cannot reach a deal. Mr. Boehner's caucus was arguably less radical than the current block of House Republicans. And do not turn the process of avoiding government default into a discussion about budgeting. That was kind of a terrifying transition because all of a sudden you're negotiating over whether or not you're going to default, said Jacob J. Liu, the Treasury Secretary under President Barack Obama, recalling the 2011 saga. Mr. Liu added, it left you with the real sense that this just could as easily have failed. Twelve years later, the government is again at risk of defaulting on its debt for the first time, and Republicans in the House are again demanding spending cuts in exchange for agreeing to raise the debt limit. Faced with the highest stakes economic obstacle of his presidency, and left with the searing memory of Obama-era fights, Mr. Biden has held firm that the discussion over raising the $31.4 trillion debt limit must take place separately from spending negotiations, advisors say. That has not always been the case. Republicans have pointed out in recent weeks that, as a senator, Mr. Biden railed against budget deficits during the Reagan presidency. In 1984, he presented a proposal to freeze federal spending for a year. He said his plan would shock the living devil out of everyone in the U.S. Senate, but it went nowhere. And as vice president, Mr. Biden tied the debt limit and budget issues in 2011 when he was negotiating for the Obama administration. In remarks to reporters on Tuesday, Mr. Biden suggested that he only did that because he had been instructed to get a deal done. I got a call that morning at 6 o'clock saying that the Republican leader would only talk to me and there was no time left, he said. And so I sat down and I got instructions from the White House to settle it. And that was my job, but I had no notice. In the spring of 2011, Mr. Biden and a bipartisan group of congressional leaders met frequently to hash out their differences. In early meetings, the group met at Blair House, where foreign dignitaries stay when they visit Washington. That summer, Mr. Boehner broke off negotiations, in large part because rank-and-file Republicans would not agree to raise taxes on the wealthy. A complex deal was reached weeks later, leaving Mr. Obama to explain to Democratic voters why he was not able to raise taxes and had agreed to at least $2.4 trillion in spending cuts. According to Mr. Biden's aides, the scar tissue remains. The second debt ceiling battle of the Obama presidency in 2013 was another test of a divided government. Mr. Obama flatly refused to negotiate, and Republicans, suffering from plunging poll numbers and the political toll of a downgrade in the country's credit rating, eventually backed down. Mr. Biden has since argued that there should be no strings attached to raising the federal debt limit, which is the cap on the amount of money that the United States is authorized to borrow to fund the government and meet its financial obligations, including paying out social safety net programs and funding the salaries of the armed forces. Biden aides point out the obvious. Relations between Republicans and Democrats have become even more fraught in the past decade. The last time a divided government threatened to take the debt limit negotiations to the brink 
Twitter was still nascent, and the idea of a President Donald J. Trump was little more than a sideshow. Now, in an era in which a large group of House Republicans remain loyal to Mr. Trump and would like to inflict pain on Mr. Biden as a matter of political principle, there is little compromise to be found on matters of substance, including the budget. When your demand is to keep the economy from falling off, and their demand is everything else, how do you meet in the middle on that? Asked Dan Pfeiffer, a former senior advisor to Mr. Obama. My recollection is that everyone believed that we would never go down that path again. Republicans argue that rather than taking the nation's debt obligations hostage, they are responding to Democrats who have long been blind to the ballooning interest costs that accompany the debt. In a meeting with Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Tuesday, several advisors said the president tried to emphasize the consequences of default and to get leaders to agree that it must be avoided at all costs. But Biden administration officials acknowledged that even if everyone agrees that default must be avoided, working back from there will be the painful part. There's a very big gap between where the president is and where the Republicans are. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen, who has warned that the United States could default as soon as June 1st, said on Monday. Mr. Biden said that he had asked the group to meet again on Friday and that staff members would meet throughout the week. Two advisors said that they expected similar meetings would take place regularly. Still, officials on both sides are not overly optimistic that a painless agreement will be reached in the short term. On Tuesday, Mr. McCarthy said that he didn't find progress in the meeting and criticized the president's suggestion that he may look at invoking a clause in the 14th Amendment that would compel the federal government to continue issuing new debt should the government run out of cash. I would think you're kind of a failure in working with people across the sides of the aisle or working with your own party to get something done, Mr. McCarthy said. Mr. Biden and Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the minority leader, stay in regular contact, aides say, but the president's advisors are reluctant to pin hopes on Mr. McConnell finding a way out of the debt ceiling morass. The president also has an untested Democratic ally in Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York, the House minority leader who would need to marshal the votes necessary to deliver on any compromise. There will be little common ground over the budget. Mr. Biden wants to expand federal spending and reduce future debt by taxing corporations and high earners, a plan his administration argues could reduce the growth in the deficit by some $3 trillion over the next decade. Republicans want to extend the tax cuts approved by Mr. Trump, which would expire at the end of 2025. Late last month, Mr. McCarthy pushed a spending bill through that would cut deep into the president's domestic agenda and slash discretionary spending, though Republicans have not outlined what might be cut and why. Since then, the Biden White House has been happy to fill the void, accusing Republicans of wanting to cut everything from veterans' health care spending to Social Security. Mr. McCarthy has called this a lie. Ahead of the next meeting, the president's advisors said they did not expect Mr. Biden's message to change, but suggested that both sides would have to be willing to make concessions. Mr. Biden's comments on Tuesday that he might be willing to support rescinding unspent coronavirus relief funds and fulfilling a Republican demand could be the sort of compromise that would prevent talks from calcifying. But Mr. Biden's aides also expect him to stress the political stakes for Republicans over the next few weeks should they refuse to budge on the debt limit. He will do so not just from the White House, but from congressional districts. On Wednesday, the president was in the Hudson Valley region of New York, where Representative Mark Molinaro, a Republican whose district includes parts of the area, has accused him of, quote, playing a game of chicken. Threat of Lethal Landslide Forces Evacuation of a Swiss Village by Christopher F. Schutz The threat of the mountain above the tiny Swiss village of Brienz has loomed for centuries. 
but state geologists and engineers warned on Tuesday that parts of the mountain were dangerously close to collapse. And the roughly 85 people who live in Brienz and in the path of a possible landslide or mountain collapse were told to evacuate by Friday night. Geological engineers started monitoring the situation on the mountain closely in 2017. In recent weeks, they have seen movement accelerate in the more than 70 million cubic feet of dirt and rocks that make up the parts of the mountain that could fall. It's clearly a difficult situation, but we are prepared and trained for this, Peter Bayer, the governor of the region, told affected villagers in a hastily organized community event on Tuesday night. Even if we hoped that what we were training for would never come to pass. Although scientists say the mountain could come down at any moment, they cannot fully predict what is going to happen. Stephen Schneider, one of the engineers in charge of efforts to monitor the rock slide, told the community that on Tuesday night. The most likely scenario is a rock slide, with rocks tumbling down the slopes but stopping before they hit the village. Another possibility would be the entire mountainside coming down in one long stream, like viscous honey, Mr. Schneider said. But the most dangerous outcome, he said, would be the mountainside coming down in one quick event, which could wipe out houses and the church of the village. Some of the buildings have stood on this spot for centuries. Mr. Schneider says this is the least likely result. Unlike many natural disasters in Europe these days, this one is not directly linked to climate change, city officials say. The mountainside has been slipping a little bit for years, but has accelerated recently. Village administrators believe, however, that the danger is only temporary and that once the mountain has moved, the village will remain intact. They have asked residents to take only items that insurance could not replace, like photo albums or heirlooms, and to prepare for weeks or months away from their homes. One resident, Renato Leash, wants a quick outcome, so he is praying for rain. Rain, he says, would make it more likely that the mountain comes down quickly, so he can move back home again. He has packed up his tools, his wood sculptures, the stamps he collected when he was a boy, and the antlers that remind him of his most successful hunting adventures, and he's ready to make the temporary move to his small hunting shack out of harm's way. Last week, the municipality, which has been updating residents about the situation for years, posted a list of moving companies that residents could use. But nobody took advantage of the list until the evacuation was announced on Tuesday, said Christian Gartman, who speaks for the municipality of El Bula, which encompasses Brienz and six other villages. Of Brienz's 85 official residents, 60 live there year-round. Because of its bucolic charm, the village's population increases during the vacation season. The village is working with neighboring towns to find private lodging close by. No one will have to sleep in a hotel or a gym, said Mr. Gartman, adding, that does not exist with us. Inside the medieval church of St. Calixtus, a 500-year-old altar was being evacuated. It sounds easier than it is, said Simon Berger, who is with the Canton Cultural Heritage Authority. Preparations for possible evacuations have taken months, but the authorities wanted to leave the altar in the church until the very end. We left it there as long as possible out of consideration for the locals, said Mr. Berger. Mr. Leash, who grew up in Brienz, says that for most of his life, the fact that the village was under threat wasn't a big deal to him. We always knew subconsciously that it is a precarious situation, he said in a telephone interview on Wednesday. Still, he never expected to be evacuated. Now that the time has apparently come, he is hoping that his house is spared, but he admitted that the outcome was not in his hands. It's like a tornado. It goes where it wants, whether you are in its way or not, Mr. Leash said. Same with the stones coming down that mountain. If they land badly, they will destroy my house. New Lawsuit Signals Continued Legal Threat to Fox by Jim Rutenberg and Stephen Lee Myers 
Fox News was hit on Wednesday with another defamation lawsuit, this one from a woman who said the network promoted lies about her that generated serious threats to her safety and harmed her career prospects. The suit was filed on behalf of Nina Jankowitz, the former executive director of a short-lived Department of Homeland Security Division assigned with coordinating efforts to monitor and address disinformation threats to national security. Right-wing pundits and politicians falsely portrayed her group as part of an Orwellian bid to control the speech and thought of ordinary Americans. Ms. Jankowitz, a prominent specialist in Russian disinformation and online harassment, became the primary subject of their attacks. In 300 mentions over eight months on Fox last year, she was repeatedly demeaned and defamed in highly personal language, the lawsuit asserts. Hosts, including Tucker Carlson, Maria Bartiromo, and Sean Hannity, said her job was to, quote, silence anyone who criticizes the Biden administration, and possibly even, as Mr. Carlson warned, get men with guns to tell you to shut up. The unit Ms. Jankowitz briefly headed, called the Disinformation Governance Board, had no such powers or any direct authority to affect speech. The department created it to help unify and oversee existing efforts by its various divisions to monitor and defend against disinformation from foreign agents seeking to influence elections, cartels promoting human smuggling operations, and those seeking to undermine the government's public health and safety efforts. After Ms. Jankowitz resigned to escape the deluge of criticism, which had caused an abrupt suspension of the board's activities, Fox hosts and guests falsely said she was fired, according to the suit. Even after achieving their stated goal of driving me out of government and ending the board, they kept using me as a punching bag, Ms. Jankowitz said in an interview on Wednesday. It shouldn't be something we just accept, that the most powerful cable network in the world can attack individuals willy-nilly and not face any consequences after they ruin their lives. Ms. Jankowitz, 34, filed her suit in the same Delaware state court system where Dominion Voting lodged its $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. The network settled that case for $787.5 million last month, avoiding a lengthy and bruising trial. The Jankowitz suit is seeking unspecified damages. That deal represented a tacit acknowledgement that Fox's promotion of falsehoods about election fraud in the 2020 election was wrongful, but it did not answer the question of whether Dominion would have been able to meet the high legal threshold required to prevail in defamation suits, proving that those who made the statements knew they were false or did not bother to find out. Ms. Jankowitz would have to meet that same threshold. Fox declined to comment on Wednesday. Her suit nevertheless represents a continued legal threat to the network, possibly made worse by Dominion's lawsuit. The Dominion case produced reams of internal Fox News communications showing that various hosts and executives knew the claims against the company were indeed false. Ms. Jankowitz's suit specifically cites the Dominion case, saying Fox's narrative about her is, quote, consistent with Fox's practices in other contexts, including in its election denialism and the related defamation of Dominion voting systems. In a letter to Fox's general counsel this week, Ms. Jankowitz's lawyers requested that the network preserve all communications, including texts, notes, and search histories, regarding her and her position on the board. A lawyer for Ms. Jankowitz, Riley Summers Flanagan, said in an interview that the Dominion case signals that there is a path for defamation lawsuits against the network. Dominion shows us how egregious the internal conversations that are happening at Fox are. It shows us that Fox News has an absolute disregard for truth when it was related to their ratings. Fox maintained that it did not show a reckless disregard for the truth in the Dominion case. That would have been determined at trial, but acknowledged in its settlement deal that the judge in the case ruled that the statements at issue in the suit were false. 
all news organizations faced their share of lawsuits. But the Dominion suit stood out for the strength of the case, the size of the settlement, and its continued fallout. Fox is confronting two shareholder lawsuits related to the Dominion case, and another suit alleging a hostile workplace from a former Carlson and producer, Abby Grossberg. It also helped lead to the cancellation of Mr. Carlson's show. Mr. Carlson, currently seeking to break his contract with Fox, which allows the network to keep him on the bench while continuing to pay his salary, is one of nearly 40 hosts and guests mentioned in Ms. Jankowitz's suit. Aside from suggesting that Ms. Jankowitz was the person that polices our thoughts, as Mr. Hannity put it, a mix of hosts and guests keyed off a misleading video clip of her to falsely assert that she had a plan to start editing your tweets, as the Fox News host Janine Pirro had said. At the time of its creation, the disinformation board also raised concerns among liberals, who questioned the powers such an office might have under a future Republican administration, but it fueled an overwhelming tsunami of partisan Republican attacks that continue to this day. Much of it focused on Ms. Jankowitz, a one-time Fulbright fellow who advised the Ukrainian government in 2017. She had written books about online attacks against women and Russian disinformation. She drew criticism from conservatives for raising questions about the validity of Hunter Biden's laptop and for comments she made about Elon Musk's bid to purchase Twitter. In March, the House Judiciary Committee issued a subpoena to Ms. Jankowitz compelling her to testify about the short-lived board's work. Fox could argue that its relentless coverage of her role reflected the political debate over the issue. It did so, however, with language that described her as a lunatic, Janko Halfwitz, a useful idiot, and the Wicked Witch, according to the complaint. According to Ms. Jankowitz's lawsuit, Fox's coverage resulted in immediate online harassment and threats, which continue even now. Citing a litany of misogynistic, anti-Semitic, and violent messages, and a doxing campaign. This has had an immense impact for my family. I don't think our security will ever be the same, Ms. Jankowitz said on Wednesday. I want to make the point that this sort of disinformation and hate campaign doesn't have a place in the American media or American politics. This isn't what we stand for. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Immigrant Influx Strains Open-Armed Chicago by Julie Bosman Bulging suitcases lined the wall of windows facing the street at a Northside police station in Chicago one morning this week. Air mattresses, blankets, and pillows covered the shiny lobby floor. More than 40 women, men, and children were crowded together wherever they could find space sleeping, chatting in Spanish, or eating forkfuls of scrambled eggs and sausages that a volunteer had arranged on a long table. In the final days of Mayor Lori Lightfoot's tenure, her administration has been confounded by a sudden surge of migrants, mostly from South America, who have been bussed or flown from southern states to Chicago Union Station or O'Hare International Airport, and then brought to police stations like the one on the north side to await shelter beds. City officials and volunteers say the response to the influx has been fractured as the chaotic reality of the migrant crisis in the United States strains the Democratic-run city's resources for housing and feeding thousands of new arrivals, and the influx is expected only to increase after a change in federal rules takes effect on Thursday. For Chicago, the challenge is not merely a practical one, but also a test of the city's own sense of identity. Since the late 19th century, when Jane Addams established Hull House, a social settlement that drew migrants, Chicago has seen itself as an entry point for newcomers, a sanctuary city that welcomes people from the outside. We're not living up to it right now, said Mary Kay McDermott, a volunteer with a local refugee resettlement group, 
as she surveyed the scene at the police station, one of dozens of stations where migrants have been given temporary shelter. We say we're a sanctuary city, Ms. McDermott said, but I don't think we've put in place the services to deal with this. As the number of migrants entering Chicago has significantly increased in recent weeks, their presence around the city, in police stations, in park facilities, and on neighborhood streets, has become far more visible. More than 100 new migrants are arriving each day now, officials said, compared with about a dozen a day a few months ago. On Tuesday, Ms. Lightfoot declared a state of emergency. She said that Greg Abbott, the Republican governor of Texas, who has bussed thousands of migrants out of Texas to Democratic-held cities far from the border, had resumed sending migrants to Chicago in the midst of a national humanitarian crisis. We should all understand that this crisis will likely deepen before we see it get better, said Ms. Lightfoot, a Democrat, adding that through a unified effort in accordance with its values as a welcoming city, Chicago is doing everything it can to respond to the urgency of this matter. Even more migrants are expected to reach cities like Chicago after Title 42, a federal pandemic restriction that allowed the swift expulsion of many migrants at the southern border, expires on Thursday. Cities including New York and Washington have seen influxes begin even before Title 42 ends. More than 8,000 migrants have come to Chicago in the past year, and by Wednesday, the city's shelter beds were full and officials were scrambling to find more space. The city has set up at least 10 shelters for housing migrants, working with community organizations to provide transportation and other services. The cost of handling the influx of migrants from January to June is close to $125 million, a city official said. The state of Illinois has approved $30 million to aid the city's response. The migrant influx is coming at a critical moment of transition for Chicago. Brandon Johnson, the mayor-elect, will be sworn in on Monday to succeed Ms. Lightfoot, and will inherit a problem that is becoming more urgent each day. Police stations where homeless people are allowed to wait before they are placed in a shelter are now serving as the city's front stop for migrants. Police officials have grown alarmed at the volume of people who have taken up residence on the floors of police stations. In at least one location, filling nearly the whole lobby and forcing police officers to send neighborhood residents seeking help with routine police matters to other precincts. Some of the migrants, including pregnant women and small children, are ill with colds, pink eye, or COVID-19, leaving volunteers and city workers scrambling to find them health services. Thousands of migrants have come to Chicago in the last year, with few belongings, limited English skills, and almost no idea of what lies ahead for them as they seek asylum and permanent residence. While the city seeks more places to house migrants, officials have used hotels, park district buildings, and vacant schools as makeshift shelters. It's unsustainable, said Maria Haddon, a city council member who represents Rogers Park on the far north side. Ms. Haddon said that as summer approaches and city parks prepare for summer sports and camps, the city may be forced to use facilities intended for other purposes to house asylum seekers instead. Whose park district is going to close down and move programming, she said. Which school is not going to be able to do summer programming? Are we going to have to cancel some things at Navy Pier? The migrants who have arrived in the city are not trying to leave, said Dr. Evelyn Figueroa, a family medicine doctor who is working with the city on handling the arrivals. Chicago is already home to a large Spanish-speaking population, and close to 30% of the city's residents are Hispanic. They want to live here, Dr. Figueroa said. They want to work here. They like Chicago. Outside one temporary shelter, Anthony Pina, 33, said he arrived in Chicago the day before and hoped that he would find more job opportunities, ideally in the construction business, than he had in his native Venezuela. 
It was very tough, he said of life there, adding that he would work for months and earn only the equivalent of $50. In many Chicago neighborhoods, a robust response from volunteers, churches, and nonprofit organizations has helped migrant families find temporary apartments, clothing, and social services. Some volunteers have opened their homes to migrant families so that they can shower or rest. At police stations, officers have brought in food they prepared for the migrants. One desk sergeant, worried that the families were not sleeping comfortably on the floor, brought in pillows. But in some neighborhoods, the Lightfoot administration's scramble to open large shelters for migrant families has been met with open hostility. In the South Shore neighborhood on the South Side, hundreds of residents gathered in a school auditorium last week to hear about the city's plans to repurpose a former high school in the area into a shelter for migrants, most of them from Venezuela. Nubia Wilman, a city hall official, was loudly booed and taunted as she faced the crowd from the stage. Residents lined up in front of a microphone and for two hours implored city officials to reverse course and put the shelter in another part of the city. The neighborhood is already strained for resources, they said, and there are not enough police officers to respond to crime and other problems that already exist. When I heard the immigrants were going to be put in a shelter here, my first thought was, are we going to be safe, said one resident, Patricia King. Clifton Bradley, the owner of a media production company, told officials he was upset that migrants were allowed to enter the United States to begin with. What I would like to say is, the sanctuary city is wrong, he said, drawing applause from the crowd. No one is entitled to anything. In an interview, Ms. Wilman said that cities are not typically responsible for resettling asylum seekers, and that Chicago was suffering from a lack of federal funding. We've never had to resettle people this way. It's a new situation for us, she said. Critics of Ms. Lightfoot, who was defeated for re-election in February after one term, said she has had months to prepare for the migrant influx, but failed to properly respond. I think this is characteristic of her administration, said Byron Sigcho Lopez, a city council member who represents a ward on the west side. The lack of coordination, the lack of consultation with local communities, and a total dismissal of the facts. At a city beach house along Lake Michigan, dozens of migrants have been staying temporarily in space that is used in the summer for storage and for lifeguards to take breaks. Many migrants there had only a blanket between them and the hard gym floor, and toddlers scampered around barefoot. Outside the field house, a group of migrants accepted slices of quiche that a volunteer, Mary Elking, had prepared at home and brought for the group. Jose Moran, 42, who was staying at the field house, said he had previously spent six days sleeping at a police station after a journey from Venezuela to Chicago that had taken months. He was still adjusting to his new surroundings, the cool late spring weather, the surprising vastness of one of the Great Lakes a few yards away. We're tired. We're exhausted, he said. We just want to stay. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The Pill Takes a Step Toward Simpler Access by Pam Ballack A panel of advisors to the Food and Drug Administration voted unanimously on Wednesday that the benefits of making a birth control pill available without a prescription outweighs the risk, a significant step in the decades-long push to make oral contraception obtainable over-the-counter in the United States. If the FDA approves non-prescription sales of the medication, called O-Pill, this summer it could significantly expand access to contraception, especially for young women and those who have had difficulty dealing with the time, costs, or logistical hurdles involved in visiting a doctor, reproductive health experts say. I think OPIL has the potential to have a huge positive public health impact, said one advisory committee member, 
Catherine Curtis, a health scientist with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Division of Reproductive Health. Approval is not a foregone conclusion, however. FDA scientists who analyzed data submitted by the pill's maker, HRA Pharma, raised concerns about whether women with medical conditions that should preclude them from taking the pill, primarily breast cancer and undiagnosed vaginal bleeding, would follow the warnings and avoid the product. The agency's reviewers also questioned whether a company study reliably demonstrated that consumers would follow the label's directions to take the pill at roughly the same time every day, and use another form of contraception or abstain from sex if they happen to miss a dose. The FDA analysts also raised questions about whether younger adolescents and people with limited literacy could follow the directions. The FDA has been put in a very difficult position of trying to determine whether it is likely that women will use this product safely and effectively at the non-prescription setting, said Dr. Karen Murray, Deputy Director of the FDA's Office of Non-Prescription Drugs, during the advisory panel's discussion session on Wednesday afternoon. We can't just approve it based on the experience in the prescription setting without the applicant doing adequate studies to look at what's likely to happen in the non-prescription setting, she said. But I wanted to again emphasize that the FDA does realize how important women's health is and how important it is to try and increase access to effective contraception for U.S. women. The advisory committee's members overwhelmingly said that those concerns were vastly outweighed by the public health need in a country where nearly half of all pregnancies are unintended, and by the long history of safety and efficacy of Opel, which was approved for prescription use 50 years ago. The panel expresses confidence in the effectiveness not only in the general population of females, but also in adolescent populations and those with limited literacy, said Maria Coyle, the chairwoman of the committee, a pharmacist and an associate clinical professor at Ohio State University. The panel seems very comfortable with the limited number of risks from the medication itself. Several panelists said Opil might actually be safest for adolescents because they are very unlikely to have breast cancer, the main medical condition that precludes taking hormonal contraception. Adolescents really urgently need this, said Dr. Leslie Walker-Harding, a panelist who specializes in adolescent medicine and the chief academic officer and senior vice president of Seattle Children's Hospital. Young people often start off with contraception they can buy over-the-counter, and other such methods, including condoms, are much less effective than pills, which prevent pregnancy 93% of the time with typical use. Most adolescents have no or a lower efficacy of birth control methods available to them, Dr. Walker-Harding said, adding that this would dramatically increase the ability of kids not having unintended pregnancies. The panelists included obstetrician gynecologists, adolescent medicine specialists, a breast cancer specialist, and experts in consumer health behavior and health literacy. Several said they believed few breast cancer patients would be at risk because their oncologists would advise them against using the pill. And many panel members who frequently prescribe birth control pills said that because doctors didn't typically monitor patient adherence and often only saw such patients annually, there was no advantage to requiring a prescription. Since the Supreme Court overturned the national right to an abortion last year, the accessibility of contraception has taken on more urgency. But even before that, the move to make a non-prescription pill available for all ages has garnered a groundswell of support from specialists in reproductive and adolescent health and groups like the American Medical Association, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the American Academy of Family Physicians. In a survey by the healthcare research organization KFF, more than three-quarters of women of reproductive age favored an over-the-counter pill, primarily because of convenience. 
While some Catholic organizations have spoken out against the -the over-the-counter birth control, most anti-abortion groups have been quiet on the issue. A vast majority of hundreds of comments submitted before the hearing supported approval of Opel. So did most of the 37 people who spoke during the hearing's public comment portion on Tuesday, including young women who gave impassioned testimony about facing challenges obtaining prescription pills. For proponents of over-the-counter pills, the main issue is affordability. This will not be a win if it is not affordable, covered by insurance, and available to folks of all ages, said Kelly Blanchard, the president of Ibis Reproductive Health. She spoke at a briefing on Monday organized by Free the Pill, a pro-over-the-counter coalition. The Affordable Care Act requires only coverage of prescription contraception, and although some states have laws mandating coverage of over-the-counter methods, most states do not. The KFF survey found that 10% of women would not be able or willing to pay any out-of-pocket cost. About 40% would pay $10 or less per month, and about a third would pay $20 or less. Frederic Wellgren, the global vice president for women's health at Perigo, which owns HRA Pharma, said recently that the company was planning to make sure that the product is affordable to women and that it would have a consumer assistance program. Opil is known as a mini-pill because it contains only one hormone, progestin, in contrast to combination pills, which contain both progestin and estrogen. A company that makes a combination pill, Cadence Health, has also been in discussions with the FDA about applying for over-the-counter status. HRA Pharma reported that participants in a study took Opil on 92.5% of the days they were supposed to take it. Most participants who missed a pill reported that they had followed the label's directions to take mitigating steps, such as abstaining from sex or using a condom, said Dr. Stephanie Sober, the company's U.S. medical liaison. She said that among 955 participants, only six became pregnant while using Opil. Most people who said they had missed doses attributed that to running out of pills before they could get to one of the study's resupply sites, results that, Dr. Sober said, illustrate precisely the barriers to adherence that could be lessened by switching Opil to the OTC setting. But FDA reviewers were concerned that about 30% of participants reported taking more pills than had been dispensed to them, a phenomenon called overreporting or improbable dosing. The reviewers wrote that because the reported dosing was not possible, it leaves us with no clarity on what one-third of study participants actually took, or if they took any drug at all. Several advisory committee members said that the company's data wasn't perfect, but that they were convinced that most people would use Opel appropriately, and said that the safety risks were low for those who did not. I think this represents a landmark in our history of women's health, said one panelist, Dr. Marjorie Gass, a retired obstetrician-gynecologist. Unwanted pregnancies can really derail a woman's life, and especially an adolescent's life. So I'm very pleased that the FDA is seriously considering this, and I look forward to it being on the market. Critics Notebook For Vast TV Menus, Machines Rule By James Ponowozik Television loves a good sentient machine story, from Battlestar Galactica to Westworld to Mrs. Davis. With the Writers Guild of America strike, that premise has broken the fourth wall. The robots are here, and the humans are racing to defend against them, or to ally with them. Among the many issues in the strike is the union's aim to regulate use of material produced using artificial intelligence or similar technologies, at a time when the ability of chatbots to auto-generate all manner of writing is growing exponentially. In essence, writers are asking the studio for guardrails against being replaced by AI, having their work used to train AI, 
or being hired to punch up AI-generated scripts at a fraction of their former pay rates. The big-ticket items in the strike involve, broadly, how the streaming model has disrupted the ways TV writers have made a living. But it's the AI question that has captured imaginations, understandably so. Hollywood loves robot stories because they make us confront what distinguishes us as human. And when it comes to distinguishing features, the ability to conjure imaginary worlds is simply sexier than the opposable thumb. So the prospect of AI screenwriting has become potent, both as a threat and a rallying cry. Detractors of the striking writers taunted them on social media that software was going to horse and buggy their livelihoods. Striking WGA members workshopped AI jokes on their picket signs, like, Chat GPT doesn't have childhood trauma. Well, it doesn't have its own. It has Sylvia Plath's and that of any other former unhappy child whose writing survives in machine-readable form. But it shouldn't surprise anyone if the TV business wants to leave open the option of relying on machine-generated entertainment. In a way, it already does. Not in the way the WGA fears. Not yet. Even the most by-the-numbers scripted drama you watch today was not written by a computer program, but it might have been recommended to you by one. Algorithms, the force behind your streaming TV for you menu, are in the business of noticing what you like and matching you with acceptable enough versions of it. To many, this is indeed acceptable enough. More than 80% of viewing on Netflix is driven by the recommendation engine. In order to make those matches, the algorithm needs a lot of content. Not necessarily brilliant, unique, nothing like it content, but familiar, reliable, plenty of things like it content. Which, as it happens, is what AI is best at. The debate over AI and screenwriting is often simplified as, could a chatbot write the next Twin Peaks? No, at least for now. Nor would anyone necessarily want it to. The bulk of TV production has no interest in generating the next Twin Peaks. That is a wild, confounding creative risk. It is interested in more reboots, more procedurals, more things similar to what you just watched. TV has always relied on formula, not necessarily in a bad way. It iterates, it churns out slight variations on a theme, it provides comfort. That's what has long made strictly formatted shows like Law & Order such reliable, relaxing primetime companions. That's also what could make them among the first candidates for AI screenwriting. Large language models like ChatGPT work by digesting vast quantities of existing text, identifying patterns, and responding to prompts by mimicking what they've learned. The more done-to-death a TV idea is, the greater the corpus of text available on it. And, well, there's a lot of law and order scripts, a lot of superhero plots, a lot of dystopian thrillers. How many writer contract cycles before you can simply drop the Harry Potter novels into the Scriptinator 3000 and let it spit out a multi-season series? In the perceptive words of Mrs. Davis, the wildly human comedic thriller about an all-powerful AI, algorithms love cliches. And there's a direct line between the unoriginality of the business, things TV critics complain about, like reboots and intellectual property adaptations, and plain old derivative stories, and the ease with which entertainment could become bloated by machine-generated mediocrity. After all, if studios treat writers like machines, asking for more remakes and clones, and if viewers are satisfied with that, it's easy to imagine the bean counters wanting to skip the middle human and simply use a program that never dreamed of becoming the next Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And one could reasonably ask, why not? Why not leave the formulas to machines and rely on people only for the more innovative work? Beyond the human cost of unemployment, though, there's an entire ecosystem in which writers come up, often through precisely those workmanlike shows, to learn the ropes.
those same writers may be able to use AI tools productively. The WGA is calling for guardrails, not a ban. And the immediate threat of AI to writers' careers may be overstated, as you know if you've ever tried to get ChatGPT to tell you a joke. It's a big fan of Cornball, why did the dot dot dot, and what do you call a dot 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 constructions. Some speculations, like the director Joe Russo's musing that AI might someday be able to whip up a rom-com starring your avatar in Marilyn Monroe's, feel like science fiction. But science fiction has a way of becoming science fact. A year ago, ChatGPT wasn't even available to the public. The last time the writers went on strike, in 2007, one of the sticking points involved streaming media, then a niche business involving things like iTunes downloads. Today, streaming has swallowed the industry. The potential rise of AI has workplace implications for writers, but it's not only a labor issue. We too have a stake in the war with the story bots. A culture that is fed entirely by regurgitating existing ideas is a stagnant one. We need innovation, experimentation, and yes, failure, in order to advance and evolve. The logical conclusion of an algorithmicized, more like what you just watched, entertainment industry is a popular culture that just stops. Maybe someday AI will be capable of genuine invention. It's also possible that what invention means for advanced AI will be different from anything we're used to. It might be wondrous or weird or incomprehensible. At that point, there's a whole discussion we can have about what creativity actually means, and whether it is by definition limited to humans. But what we do know is that, in this timeline, it is a human skill to create a story that surprises, challenges, frustrates, discovers ideas that did not exist before. Whether we care about that, whether we value it over an unlimited supply of reliable, good enough menu options, is for now still our choice. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Why Your Campus Has a Smokestack By Patrick Sasson The P.R. Mallory Campus, a century-old brick building in the Englewood neighborhood in Indianapolis, has long been known for innovation. The company's scientists and engineers had for decades devised new consumer goods, including radios, washing machines, and even the Duracell battery. Now one of its new tenants, Purdue Polytechnic High School, hopes its students will make their own scientific discoveries. In 2020, Purdue, a 600-student charter school, took over two floors in the former industrial site, which had sat abandoned for 30 years. The campus was transformed with the help of historic renovation tax credits to help adapt the space for reuse. The school is an example of adaptive reuse projects for education, which have turned former big-box stores, churches, tortilla factories, office buildings, and even a space for laser tag into educational centers. In most cases, these projects have benefited charter institutions that focus on urban neighborhoods, which often start off leasing spare rooms in locations like malls or churches, then turn to adaptive reuse to save money when buying more permanent space. School officials view the commercial real estate slump as a moment to seize on new opportunities. Growth in mid-sized cities, especially in the Sun Belt, offers potential for conversions. This is especially true for schools with more autonomy that want to try new spaces and layouts. I see far more transformative work being done by social entrepreneurs who are not bound by large district rules and regulations, said Larry Kearns, a principal at Wheeler Kearns Architects. Charter schools reported significant growth during the early years of the pandemic. Enrollment rose 7%, or more than 240,000 students in the 2020-2021 school year from the previous year 
according to the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Enrollment has since waned slightly, though the number of facilities continues to increase. Since 2000, public schools have lost about 1.2 million students. There's still a need for schools, and the market has picked up again after stalling out a bit, said Amanda Whitaker of ANF Architects, which focuses on education products, including a charter high school at Crosstown Concourse, a former Sears warehouse in Memphis that was converted into a vertical village. In the charter school realm and lower-income inner-city areas, the ability to find a vacant lot to build a school just isn't there, she said. Charter schools have remained divisive. Opponents say the schools rob public institutions of funding, serve only part of the student population, and in some cases provide substandard education. Many cities have rules on where they can operate and what property they can own, and even caps on the total number of schools. Proponents counter that they offer school choice in newer, better facilities, particularly in underfunded neighborhoods. In addition, charter schools have more freedom to choose their locations. For public schools, many issues make adaptive reuse less than ideal. Existing real estate investments, school closings, old infrastructure and funding cuts, requirements for size and outdoor space and maintenance and material plans that discourage unusual locations. And public schools, especially high schools, are larger and have a harder time resolving issues like security, disruptive noise, and windows and daylight for classrooms. Finally, many school districts are focused on renovating and upgrading their own buildings, thanks in part to millions of dollars in funding for better ventilation, mechanical systems, and other upgrades that have flowed to public schools via the 2021 American Rescue Plan. Carving classroom space out of commercial buildings is relatively straightforward, said Ms. Whitaker, but installing plumbing, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems that meet the needs of hundreds of students becomes tricky. That's why big box stores and other retail spaces, which often already have restrooms and kitchens, make for easier conversions. She also found that churches, which often have multi-purpose areas, kitchens, and even an outdoor space, make good schools. Charter organizations around the nation are adapting former commercial sites. Freedom Preparatory Academy, a Memphis-based charter organization, plans to expand to Birmingham, Alabama next year. The organization's chief executive, Roblin J. Webb, said she had been touring older commercial spaces and a former Boys and Girls Club she hoped to buy. Colorado Early Colleges, a chain in the Fort Collins and Colorado Springs area, has all of its eight schools and one under construction in former commercial buildings, including a solar inverter factory and second-class office space. One warehouse conversion project includes an indoor gymnasium and a leftover crane has been turned into a design centerpiece. Strung with light fixtures, it helps create a unique common space. Rather than a big public school with 2,000 to 3,000 students, CEC can have a series of smaller schools within the region, said Paul Vanderheiden, an interior designer at Neenan Architecture, which has worked on all of the organization's locations. These types of conversions, and even renovations that focus on STEM curriculums and more open collaboration spaces, have become a staple of educational design. JGMA, a Chicago architectural firm, converted a suburban Kmart store into a prep academy that opened in 2018. In New York, the brightly colored School for the Physical City opened in a converted office space in 1993. Charter advocates also say that schools with open floor plans that mimic the office spaces of tech and design firms will prepare students for STEM-focused careers. The QX Institute, a nonprofit organization that calls for more real-world educational opportunities and has teamed up with charters in public school districts in New York and Washington, promotes these layouts. 
If the schools of the 20th century were designed around the assembly line, shouldn't today's high schools look more like innovation centers? Schools like Purdue Polytechnic represent a small group that models how education facilities should be built, said Michelle Cahill, a QX senior advisor who was a New York school official during the Bloomberg administration. The future of schools requires opening up buildings for project-based learning, she said, and creating engaged spaces that avoid distraction and allow for better engagement. Purdue Polytechnic teams up with the nearby Big Ten University of the same name to provide advanced courses. The building's open spaces, now divided by roll-up garage doors, allow students to create and collaborate, said Keenan Warren, the organization's chief executive. The facility you put your kids in shows what you value, she said. A good number of our kids came straight from the neighborhood, so they feel good knowing what the facility once looked like, which now feels like a real investment in them. In Kansas City, the Barstow schools opened a new facility, the Idea Space, and a 65,000-square-foot former Hy-Vee grocery store last fall. At roughly $12 million, including $3 million for the real estate, the new facility cost one-third of what a built-from-the-ground-up project would. Part of the attractiveness of the space is that you can dream big, said the organization's president, Shane Foster. It's a big old grocery store with a 19-foot ceiling, so we didn't have to tear down brick walls to create this wide-open space. Increased demand for early childhood education has also driven more real estate transactions, seeking to transform commercial space into facilities for preschoolers. More office owners in Brooklyn and Manhattan are getting creative to attract schools by offering separate entrances and designated elevators, said Paul Wexler, a broken for Corcoran New York's real estate team. He recently represented Empire State Realty Trust in a deal with the New York City School Construction Authority to create a pre-K space in a former Ethan Allen showroom in Manhattan. Part of the demand for early childhood spaces comes from mandatory expansion from new funding initiatives in cities like New York, Boston, and Washington, but it's also because demand still far outpaces supply, said Travis Waldrop, vice president of real estate at Primrose Schools, an early education chain with nearly 500 locations across the country. In Grant Park, south of Atlanta, an obsolete warehouse was turned into a preschool, with the roof partially peeled back to create outdoor play space within the structure's walls. In Austin, one location sandwiched a playground between a parking deck and an office. Primrose has eight other potential adaptive reuse locations in the pipeline. Flexibility is the strategy that wins the day, Mr. Waldrop said. Developing these sites is a 100-sided puzzle. A few more songs before he goes. By Grayson Haver Curran. Graham Nash was slow to smile on a recent Wednesday afternoon sitting in early spring sunshine on the porch of a cafe near Washington, D.C. The night before, the 81-year-old singer-songwriter had bounded onto the stage of the folk bastion The Birchmere and wooed the sold-out crowd with his tunes that long ago became generational standards, like Teacher Children and Military Madness. He shared the songs and candid stories of longtime pals like Paul McCartney and Joni Mitchell, landing expertly practiced punchlines. But he'd awakened in the days of emotional hangover. Exactly three months had passed since the January death of David Crosby, his best friend and closest collaborator, since they first harmonized together in August 1968 at the Laurel Canyon Cottage that Nash would soon share with Mitchell. It's like an earthquake, he said, his English accent softened by nearly 50 years in California and Hawaii. The shock was terrifying, and I see his face, and it makes me really sad. The day's aftershock stemmed from a video tribute Nash recorded for Neil Young and Stephen Stills to use at an autism benefit. 
It was another unwelcome opportunity to contemplate all that Nash and Crosby left unsaid during the prior decade, as the pair traded barbs in the press, left an album with Rick Rubin unfinished, and rarely spoke. In early January, Crosby emailed Nash to say he wanted to talk, then left a voicemail message telling him he wanted to apologize for, as Nash remembered, all the stupid things I said about you, and particularly Neil. After Nash set a time, Crosby stood him up. Three days later, he was dead. David was a very interesting couple of people. He was generous, funny, and the most unbelievably great musician. On the other hand, he could make an entire room feel bad with two words, Nash said, making his way through the first of three lunchtime lattes. I wanted to remember the good music we made and the great times we had. Let that satisfy you. But he's gone. Nash is now a member of the rarest class of living rock legend. Old enough to have witnessed the genre's genesis and eager to talk about his wild days, but also inspired enough by his current work to rave about new songs. This year alone, he has reunited with a childhood chum, the Hollies co-founder Alan Clark, for the sentimental and charming album I'll Never Forget, singing backup on most songs. And on May 19th, Nash will release Now, 13 tracks about American unrest and renewal inspired by his third marriage and a move to New York. Still, several of his favorite former musical partners, like Crosby, the drummer Jim Gordon, and the multi-instrumentalist David Lindley have all died since January. He knows his life's work is increasingly a race against mortality. I tried to be the best husband, the best friend, the best musician, but I'll never make it, he said. I'm still healthy, but so was David. I could drop dead in the middle of this conversation. Nash's life story reads like a rock and roll fantasy. He was raised working class in Salford, near Manchester, and first heard hints of the stateside musical revolution by pressing his ear to his bedpost on Sunday nights. As his parents listened to Radio Luxembourg downstairs, the sound traveled through the wooden beams of their close quarters, sparking his imagination. My mother and father didn't let me get a real job because music's not going to last, he said by phone during an earlier conversation. My mother always said to me, follow your heart and you will always make the right choices. Life is just choices. Already playing the proto-rock of Skiffle, Nash skipped school to score tickets to see Bill Haley and his Comets with Clark days after his 15th birthday. The duo soon beat the Beatles in a talent show before they ever were the Beatles. Three years later, they stalked the Everly Brothers to their hotel where they received the encouragement they needed to start the Hollies. The Hollies' suave R&B covers and bittersweet originals made them pop sensations, part of the Beatles' global sea change. During their first U.S. appearance, they shared a bill with Little Richard and the young guitarist he scolded for upstaging him, Jimi Hendrix. But soon after his father's 1966 death, Nash tired of the group's strict parameters. When he first sang with Stills and Nash in California, he knew his future lay in its libertine lifestyle. He fell in love with Mitchell. His mother didn't realize he had left the Hollies, his first marriage in England altogether, until a copy of Crosby, Stills, and Nash's debut LP arrived, a chart-topping postcard home. The split blindsided Clark, especially because Nash refused to tell him directly. He was my brother, really, and he had gone and fallen in love with someone else, Clark said, shrugging in a video interview. I had a family, and I was devastated. What was going to happen to me now? That ceaseless need for reinvention bordering perhaps on an obsession with relevance, has threaded together Nash's career and life. He indulged drum machines and synths for his lampooned 1986 album Innocent Eyes. He used augmented reality for a prescient but lambasted high-tech concert series a decade later. A zealous photographer and art collector, 
Nash was an early adopter of fine art digital prints, an enduring side enterprise. He was a self-professed cad during his first marriage, ultimately leading him to Mitchell. He has always believed he should have proposed to her in the early 70s, but she worried he wanted her to play housekeeper to his rock star. In the half-century since they split, he's never forgotten to send her birthday flowers. But for the final eight years of his 38-year marriage to the actress Susan Sennett, he was not in love, something he said they both acknowledged. In 2014, he met the artist Amy Grantham, four decades his junior, backstage at a Crosby, Stills & Nash show during one of their final tours. He said that first moment he realized happiness was again possible. He told Sennett about the attraction, and they split two years later. Sennett died soon after Nash and Grantham's 2019 Woodstock wedding. In the acrimonious annals of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, Nash generally seemed the best-adjusted, least controversial member. He quit hard drugs relatively early and devoted decades to charity. For some, his divorce and remarriage represented a heel turn. But, he reiterated, it was worth it. I've never been upset with any major decision I've made, he said, noting that he did regret missing his parents' death. I have enjoyed my life and made some incredibly correct decisions for me. I hope to be going on for a few more years yet. After a lifetime of restlessness, now feels remarkably content, as if Nash had slipped into a favorite old overcoat to find a cache of new tunes stuffed inside a pocket. There are political jeremiads that decry MAGA tourists, plus a next-generation hymn that echoes Teach Your Children. He wrote Buddies Back, a glowing celebration of the Holly's forebear for Clark. They cut different takes for their respective albums, joyously closing a broken boyhood circle. Love songs for Grantham shape nearly half of the album, gentle and guileless tunes that glow. It Feels Like Home is Our House recast for the East Coast, Nash walking through the door to find the answer to a prayer. He apologizes for lashing out during Love of Mine, a true-to-life mea culpa after Grantham told him to stop clogging Manhattan sidewalks. Now unspools a hard-won tranquility. I really believed in my mid-70s, I'm coming to the end of my life. It's all finished, he said. In many ways, Amy saved my life. I wanted to wear my heart on my sleeve, as I try and always do. As Nash relaxed on that sunny porch, he pulled up the sleeves of his black t-shirt to reveal three tattoos. There was the Hindu god Ganesha below his left arm shoulder, his ex-wife below his right. He lingered longer on his left forearm, where the black ink of the Vegvisir, often called the Viking Compass, was fading. It's so I don't get lost, he said, lifting his gaze and grinning but it might be upside down, so who knows. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 11th, 2023 edition of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jeremy Morlock. Thank you for listening.